this isn't something we do like well it is and it isn't so it's not something we do like opening a door we can be intentional about cultivating this ability but it's something implicitly we're doing all the time and that's what I think is really amazing about it too is that as we're navigating the world as embodied beings we're whether we know it or not we're creating these hierarchies of meaning we're refining our system of meaning we're refining our worldview our 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 religious and spiritual lives are different moment to moment because we're collecting and integrating information about the world we're having new experiences we're having new insights we're being affected by powers and forces that we don't understand all of this is just happening to us and we have a role in that so there is this agency that we you know we can do stuff we can cultivate that awareness of that process happening but it's it's happening whether you're like doing it or not it's not it's not something that you're doing it's something that it's doing to you Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, and it's good to have you here. I want to thank my participant from today, Stuart Nelson. We've been friends for a while, and usually our conversations are had over food and drink, and this was nice to get to know him in a new way, get to know his thoughts and uh, his experiences as they relate to these subjects of mystery and health and spirituality, religion, and cognitive sciences, which is um, one of the academic traditions that he really grounds himself in, which is is nice, considering the uh, typical topics of the podcast. So again, welcome, and thank you to Stuart. Check him out at uh, spiritualityandhealth.org. He is the vice president of the Institute of Spirituality and Health here in Houston. The website is spirituality, S-P-I-R-I-T-U-A-L-I-T-Y, and health, H-E-A-L-T-H.org. You won't be disappointed. Let me read his bio, actually, while I'm thinking about that. So, where are you? There you are. Stuart Nelson has served as the Institute for Spirituality and Health's Vice President for the past six years. In this capacity, he uses his training in both the sciences and the humanities to creatively organize and execute a broad range of programs and services, as well as to help manage the Institute's long-term vision, strategic plan, and general operations. Stuart grew up in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, attending international schools until college. He earned bachelor's degrees in cognitive science, religious studies, and psychology from Rice University. During this time, he realized that the scholarly study of religion has tremendous potential to inform and complement health systems. He completed a master's in religious studies at UC Santa Barbara, where he used theories and methods from cognitive science of religion to inform work at the intersection between religious identity and mental health. This passion extends to his current work. 
he enjoys hip-hop, classic rock, and classical Indian music, of which he plays. He's a sitar player, as well as Impressionism, Surrealism, and Modern Art. Additionally, he's an avid birder. And it's, that's pertinent to our conversation. You'll hear a little uh, bit of the, the, the root of birding in his life. Thanks, Stuart. Okay, the music, theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. Get them at modernnationsmusic.com. The band of the week here is um, Sound Team. And it's important because one of those nights when Stuart and I were having food and drink and conversation, he introduced me to the band Sound Team, and I have really enjoyed their work. Check out the liner notes of the podcast. I'll have a link to the iTunes page where you can purchase the album. And I'm using two songs on this podcast. The first, let me see, is uh, the first little snippet you heard at the intro was Your Eyes Are Liars off that album, Movie Monster. And then at the end of the episode, I'm going to use a full song. The song is Born to Please. I highly recommend hanging out and listening to that. Anything else right now? Oh, yeah. Like, review <laughs> this podcast on all the platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you can, wherever you're listening. And also the social media platforms of Facebook, Twitter, and social, uh, Instagram. But most of all, again, thanks for being here. I've got something to celebrate, and I'm really excited. The 50th episode is coming up. It's been a, this podcast has been <laughs> one of the more important processes of my life. So I'm grateful to celebrate 50 because I can, of course, recall <laughs> all of them. And I think, I think it was a big deal when I got to 20. So now to be at 50, it's, it's, uh, it's even bigger. It's an even bigger deal. And, of course, the guest is a big deal. I, I interviewed Thomas Moore, and he's written countless books. I'm looking at two right now sitting on my desk. I had the most enlightening conversation with him. It was lovely. So we're going to celebrate episode 50. It's going to come out in at the first week of December. For now, check the Instagram page. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff going on before then. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm eager to, to celebrate and Stuart is paving the way to that big celebration. So, you know, everybody that I've spoken with, when I look back on almost 50 and now I've recorded it, but not edited 50, 50 episodes, I'm kind of blown away. I'm really honored to do this. So thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. And uh, thank you to Stuart for for this conversation. Uh, it it it's been it's been traveling with me ever since we had it. I think that's it. So we leave it there. We've been friends for a while. I've been really excited to talk to you you know, this is a spontaneous conversation and, uh, I'm just eager to see where it goes, man. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you for having me. I've also been really excited to be here. Um, I think we both have, uh, the intention of, of preparing and of sending <laughs> notes meaningfully back to and forth to each other. And then we also oh. both have the, the quality of not doing that. Yeah. And, best plans. And, that are <laughs> yeah. And so here we are, we've arrived at the moment. 
And I had a really wonderful deja vu uh, about 10 minutes ago. Yeah. And that I took it as a as a good sign because it felt like a good deja vu. Not and then I spilled foreboding. my shit all over the place. And then you spilled your shit all over the place, which is just perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah, it was perfect. And, uh, and so here, here we are. Well, welcome. And, um, you know, we spent a, a, just a few minutes earlier just kind of framing this in. And before we go into that framing, I want uh, to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and you know talk about your pursuit and um kind of just yeah just frame in why we're going to speak about what we're going to speak about when recounting my own life it's always kind of interesting to think about where to begin um you know i was born in houston uh right here but between then and now uh i have i've done a lot of different things and lived a lot of different places so when i say that i'm from houston if I'm not feeling friendly, I leave it there and people think I'm a homegrown guy like a lot of Houstonians. And if I'm feeling, you know, gregarious, then I go into my whole story, which um, I think is really important uh, because it, it really formed my thinking about a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. um, so while I was born here, I was raised overseas. So I spent the first 18 years of my life living abroad, um, living in different cultures, I lived in Indonesia for five years. Malaysia for three years, Singapore for four, the UAE for three, um, London for two years. So all of the world traveling um, with my father's job. And um, that did several things to me. Um, it, it gifted me uh, this very broad and worldly view of, of um, humans. <laughs> and uh, the, the different ways that humans express themselves culturally, religiously, linguistically. Um, it also ensured that while I have had enduring relationships with people for my whole life, I didn't have a core tribe that I was friends with in first grade and graduated high school or something together. I was um, sort of my, my relationships and my friends were fragmented through life depending on different places, different phases of life, different interests. And so I think that also um, has contributed to, to me and my soul and my spirit. Um, I was very into science um, growing up, in, in particular in high school. And uh, I, in sixth grade, I got a perfect score, the only perfect score in the class on drawing a heart diagram uh, with all the different anatomy. And um, after getting that nice reward of a perfect score and you know the rush that comes with that, I, I set out then to become a heart surgeon in sixth grade. And I was um, really excited for my whole life to become a heart surgeon until I took my first religious studies class in uh, my freshman <laughs> year of college. Um, studied here at Rice University. Um, and a friend had told me upon entering college, if there's one thing you do here, take a religious studies class. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is going to be, you know, like a seminary class. It's going to be a bunch of theology, and which is exciting. And I've learned that's, that's exciting, too, but wasn't in that space at the time. But he convinced me, Roger Sharp, he convinced me, he said, Stu, you got to do it. And he said, in particular, there's this class next semester taught by a man named Jeff Kripal called Metaphysical American Religion. And uh, I arrived to class on the first day, and I remember sitting down and 
throughout that that class i had these moments of oh my god i did not know we were allowed to ask these questions i didn't know that we were allowed to delve into this subject matter why are people religious how have these things been expressed across the centuries what happens when religious traditions are deconstructed what new insights can we gain what happens when our own religious lives are deconstructed what insights can we gain how are we changed after those processes and it was just a whole new mode of thinking. It was like finding a room in a house you had lived in that was the coolest room in the house <laughs> that you'd been missing your whole life and and being able to spend time in that room and, um, and explore it. Um, and so I, I, I had this big sh shift. It's about when I was about 20. And I, I wanted to keep my... Um, my interest in, in caring for people in medicine around um, and, and as a part of me. Um, but I also couldn't ignore this draw towards the humanities um, for the first real focused time in my life. And so throughout my education, I started noticing um, that people in college were coming in with a certain set of beliefs and they were encountering new ideas, new modes of thinking. They were in a totally different environment. They were away from their families, their friends. They were making new families and friends, um, being exposed to all sorts of new knowledge. And in many cases, that was something that was disruptive and it was disorienting and confusing. And some people can go through that process um, and integrate it and pick the pieces back up and put them together. And other people can't, and they need help with that. And a key insight for me was that a lot of people were doing that putting back together process in the Department of Religious Studies, and they were using their four-year degree program as a way to work through their own identity. And these are individuals that didn't want to go see a, a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist because they thought, well, I, I don't need a shrink. You know, I don't need to go and see someone. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, and they also didn't want to go to a church home or a religious or faith leader to have those conversations because that's precisely what they were wrestling with and, uh, you know, feeling like maybe if you go back to the pastor you were raised with, you're just going to get more of the same you've had your whole life. So they, there was this gap, and they were filling the gap with the study of religion and, and using their four-year de four degree program as a kind of a therapeutic process. And I thought that was really powerful. I thought that idea was really powerful. And um, so I began becoming more and more interested in thinking about ways to use the theories and methods from religious studies that are often boxed into an academic context. They're kept in the ivory tower. How we can package them in ways that are useful for healthcare professionals, in particular mental health professionals, and how we can draw insights from the humanities and in particular religious studies to empower us to think more creatively about how we work with patients, how we work with ourselves. Um, and so those interests really crystallized and, and, and became, um, I became, I had a much deeper understanding of them uh, after pursuing a master's in religious studies in UC Santa Barbara with a woman there named Ann Taves. And, and, is a fantastic thinker and writer um, in the field of cognitive science of religion. 
And so again, I've kept one foot in this sciencey, um, you know, cognitive science, especially on the West Coast, is very computationally focused. There's a lot of sort of neurolinguistics, neuroscience perspectives that are really, really informative and really important. Um, and so using some of these materialist ways of thinking about things that, um, that are just beginning to be understood um, and maybe will never be understood from a materialist lens, but using some of those tools. Um, and so, so that process um, led me to led me to become more and more curious and and think in much deeper ways about how people consider and articulate their religious beliefs, their spiritual values, their worldviews, their meaning systems. Um, it led me to to try to to figure out how to how to ask people questions that they may have not considered before that would help them to refine, consider, articulate, digest, process their most deeply held beliefs and values. Um, and the tools of religious studies were really useful for doing that, and in particular, the tools of cognitive science of religion. So that's sort of my background in education. And, and when I graduated, it marked um, a new chapter uh, you're out of school and, and you need to find a job, a real job, you know? What are you gonna do with that? You gotta find a real job. You can't always roam the world like Kane and Kung Fu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes you gotta you gotta make that paper. So um, I found this place, the Institute for Spirituality and Health, right here in the Texas Medical Center. And it's a it's an incredible organization. It's got a 65 year history in the TMC, founded as the Institute of Religion had the first nationally accredited hospital chaplaincy training program in the country. People came from all over in the 50s to learn how to be hospital chaplains. And over time, uh, our programmatic things have changed and shifted. Um, our areas of focus a little bit have, have changed and shifted, but we've always been dedicated to the idea that humans are spiritual beings and that healthcare should reflect that reality and that there's this really important dialogue that has to happen between science and religion healthcare and the human spirit, the humanities and the sciences. Um, and we've doggedly pursued that for, for our history. And it was a perfect landing pad for me. And it, it was really great for me too because it allowed me to expand my, my academic focus and my intellectual focus from this mental health domain to healthcare and health and the body. Um, more broadly construed and uh, it's been really wonderful to be able to apply some of the same things that I've been wrestling with um, in college and in grad school to uh, Texas Children's Hospital to you know MD Anderson Cancer Center cancer patients to women in recovery to bereavement um, to tier Memorial Hermann Rehabilitation Center you know, to, to health conditions that, um, that, are, that are much broader than just a mental health focus. Um, 
I've been really interested um, in in two definitions of spirituality recently, of many. I mean, there's dozens and dozens and dozens, and everyone kind of, in some sense, I think that's their own. I always joke that even if you've been going to the same church for 40 years and you've been sitting next to the same person in the pew for 40 years, you probably have a different understanding of religion and a different understanding of spirituality. It's just the way we work. Um, well, let me jump in real quick. Cause I yeah, wanna, yeah, please, please. I hear where we're going, and... I want to get a bit surgical with all these things you just said. Yeah, I, please, I, please, yeah. I think there's some... So I want to let, pin this up real quick because the two definitions of spirituality is the the, the breadcrumbs we're going to pick up on. It okay, cool. Bit. We'll bookmark it and, and return. I, I, I want to go through, just kind of define some of these um, ideas, that. Um, but I want to start with something personal and I'm just curious. Do you remember these moments of insight that you had in your religious studies programs i mean what what was it that really opened you up and it may not be just one moment of course but do you recall when that was i recall um yeah some i have what i call i like to call flashbulb memories you know memories that are very you know like a polaroid shot um i remember looking into Roger Sharp's eyes and Nick Hambly's eyes who were these two seniors when i was a freshman and i looked up to them and and they were, I met them the first week of school and they were there, uh, both religious studies majors and both looking at me in the food hall of Will Rice College at Rice University. And I, I just remember it perfectly. And they said, Stuart, if there's one thing you do while you're here, you gotta take a course in religious studies. And I remember being confused, kind of being unsure, um, but there was such certainty it was like they just knew that it would really, really speak to me. I mean, they weren't going around to all the students and, you know, evangelizing for religious studies. They they knew that 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 was my. They somehow knew that that would be a calling of mine and and something that I'd be really deeply um, interested in and and eventually invested in. So there's that memory. Um, and then as I was recounting earlier, you know, I remember, I remember sitting in that first class. And just having the sense of novelty. I mean, just this is like brand new terrain. You know, here I had been all over the world. I had encountered religious cultures. I had experienced all sorts of different friends groups, countries, you know, academic areas and in schools and went to great schools. But I had never experienced a class like this, like ever. I didn't know it was possible. I didn't know it was allowed. It was sort of there was a transgressive nature to it where you know here we are here i am in other countries and one of the most important things is to be open and respectful to a host country if you're you know a white guy from houston texas in the middle of jakarta like you just you need to be open and respectful of the context around you and and as a kid i wasn't thinking too much about these traditions and their origins and where they came from etc but then here we are in religious studies class, boom, that's, that's what you're doing. You're comparing, you're constructing and deconstructing, you're using critical theory, you're thinking about how um, these arcs of history are interwoven with your own life and biography. It's all really deep work. And um, so is this new, some ways, very vulnerable process and also a, a little bit of a transgressive process, you know? Um, <laughs> I remember also the first time where I heard this term uh, 
creative tension, which I've always used. It's like become a little bit of a mantra is where, where can we find the creative tension here? And in religious studies, we talk about the creative tension between the insider and the outsider perspective or the subject and the observer. And so as individuals, we have our own experiences that form our worldviews and they form our, our, um, the way we walk through life. But then also as humans, we have this wonderful ability to step out of ourselves and reflect back and look at ourselves objectively. I mean, you can't always subject, uh, separate subjective and objective, but you can. we have this kind of cool ability to step outside of ourselves and really think about think about thinking, think mm. about ourselves. And, um, and so the creative tension happens between that insider and that outsider perspective. And I think a lot of really productive work is done on that thread between the two. Um, there's something musical about it too, you mm-hmm. know, thinking about a guitar string mm-hmm. um, and finding out where, where to play that string, how hard to, how hard to play it, you know, on that line between insider and outsider perspectives. Um, so I remember that, I remember that, that term and just really loving that term. Um, so those are some formative moments. Um, you know, I also remember, uh, I also remember the first day of, of grad school and like <laughs> in high school, I was always really, really a top achiever. You know, I was one of the top in the class and, you know, really smart kid. And then I get to college and it's like, okay, you know, this is like the big leagues here, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm cruising through that, finally getting some comfort. And then I go to grad school and it's just that again, like another level of that where I'm just around these people with an incredible richness of knowledge, incredibly intelligent. I feel like this small fish, you know, in this big pond. Um, and just being yet again surprised by the depth of this discipline and by the immensity of this, of this, you know, I, I play music, my, I play sitar, classical Indian instrument. And one of the first, um, one of the first things my, uh, my teacher said, um, um, it's Srinivas, uh, we were sitting in class and he said, well, Stuart, you, you just got to know that classical Indian music is an ocean and you're on the beach right now. You're standing on the beach and you're looking out at this ocean and we're about to enter the waters. And, you know, like three years later, I reminded him of that. I said, you know, Srinivas, you know, we've been together three years and, um, you know, I'm loving this instrument. I'm really making great progress and I'm like understanding it more. And I said, so you know, where are we? And he said, you're standing on the beach looking at this ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, all right, you know, and, and, and those moments of, um, it's the same, it's the feeling we get when we, when we look at the stars. Um, it's the feeling we get when we have been together with a lover for so many years and we look into their eyes and we see so much we don't know. Um, it's the same feeling we get when we become invested in a discipline, like I'm saying, and we realize this universe of possibilities within something so beautiful. Uh, I, it, but I, 
I think a lot of us are scared by that. Oh yeah, it's it's terrifying. Yeah, you know, to just to think about how many of us have had an experience wherein we, you know, contemplate something so enormous and infinite, and quickly go, oh shit, you know, and get back into some kind of orientation that helps provide a sense of safety. And I'm not saying either is good or bad, but I just think it's kind of our nature to, you know, w one reason why maybe religious studies is thought of in the way that it is, because most people I talk to are have that experience of being surprised, myself included, like, oh, I thought it was this, but it's really that. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. Exactly. And so there, there's something to do with that relationship between, you know, uh, getting in contact with something that's really large and feeling really small and being intimidated by that as opposed to curious mm -hmm. and interested. So to feel, I imagine to feel a part of a discipline that actually helps um, provide somebody a guide rail into that, um, to, to be in that space more often and to, uh, you know, not to get comfortable with it, but to make sense and provide meaning out of mm -hmm. feeling that terrifying mystery. Yeah, I mean, to return to the creative tension aspect, I mean, there we can locate it to creative tension between terror and curiosity, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And and the whole discipline is is like, it's cool because it's kind of geared towards that. It's, it's, it's geared towards breaking the world apart and putting it back together and finding that and breaking it apart again and putting it back together and breaking it apart and putting it back together again and again. Um, so yeah, it's it's those are some moments that I remember. Um, thanks for asking. Yeah, and then the other thing that I, you know, before we jump into the, we pull out our bookmark, um, cognitive sciences. You you and I've always talked about your interest in cognitive sciences, and recently it's it's been a frustration of mine that so often, you know, it happens with therapists, it happens with folks in religious studies where we neglect, you know, we kind of demonize the materialistic mm -hmm. approach. And I mean, that's strong. I just, it's foreign. I've certainly done it before. Um, I think to get into the humanities, you need to kind of have another where you push up against, but eventually you've really got to find a way to harmonize between the, the, the dual perspectives. But what I've always liked about what you've been doing um, and that the, the, your design of the heart is a, such a great image to think about in your trajectory as, um, as you've grown and developed that you had a collision very early on between something that people may not be that aware of that it even exists, this relationship between cognitive sciences and religion. And I, I wonder if you could speak about that for a moment before we jump into spirituality. Yeah, sure. Um, there's, there's a moment that I remember, um, so at the same time I was doing this first religious studies course, I was also uh, becoming certified as a EMT and and riding on ambulances, and ended up getting my certification and, and serving <laughs> as an EMT. So there was this moment we had responded to a uh, a motorcycle accident on this freeway, and and. We got out, and uh, the guy was not doing doing well. He was in these bushes on this feeder road, and uh, I was I was behind him, holding his head, and I was I, I could feel his skull um, moving in my hand in a way that's like 
you know there's a couple lego pieces that aren't attached you know and so here i am holding his head um and we get him stabilized we get him into the ambulance and uh he's conscious and i'm i'm aware of all of this going around on around me of of the the meds, the IVs, um, the radio chatter, all of this really technical stuff going on around me. Um, and I remember looking into his eyes and seeing him as this human being there. And in the midst of this training and in the midst of this, all this knowledge that I had been gaining about the way the body works, about the way that this system works, about the way that the ambulance system works, EMT service works, all of that, your EMS service. The thing that I was most connected to and struck by in that moment was was this man's gaze and this relationship with him. And um, it was a real moment of... It was a real moment of insight for me because in order to understand him fully, I needed to know about all of this stuff that was going on around him, the IVs and the, and the mask, you know, oxygen mask on him and the, you know, the wounds being tended to in this precise way. That's part of his experience now. And we can't care for him without, without doing all of that. But this thing that really grabbed me was this indescribable interpersonal connection between a healer and a patient. Um, and the humanness and the sort of spiritual fizzing of that moment um, c- couldn't be reduced. You know, it, it, it couldn't be um, negotiated by knowledge and by, um, by experience and, you know, acumen, technical acumen. So it's always stood out in my mind as this sort of moment of... Um, real depth and and i i think i i recall that moment after your question because for me that's the way that this relationship between cognitive science and religious studies for me has kind of worked it's it's this so cognitive science um for those who are unfamiliar at least the way that i learned it um is sort of a a hybrid of several disciplines it's an interjoining of several in fact they don't even have a cognitive science department at rice so getting my degree there was a combo of classes in linguistics, in computer science, in philosophy, and in psychology. And so we're dealing with theory of mind, we're dealing with computational neuroscience, we're dealing with cognitive linguistics, we're dealing with you know, how language packages meaning, mm-hmm. um, we're dealing with... Um, things like abnormal psychology and and anatomy and things. But there's always also this interesting feeling in CogSci that it's a new frontier. It's a relatively new discipline. And so there's still also that oceanic standing on the beach vibe with CogSci. You know, I, I often joke that no matter how impressive our advances in neuroscience have been, we're still really playing with, with build with Lego blocks, you know, we're still just beginning to understand um, the complexities of... But acting as if it's the answer. Yeah, many people do. Yeah. Many people do. And uh, I think there's... Um, that's a mistake to be so confident. It's a, it's a form of kind of fundamentalism. 
Um, it's being absolutely it's being sure about something based on only a limited set of experiences and facts. Well, and uh, and and taking con- concretely a theory of mind that's supposed to take us into something rather than be the destination. Yeah, exactly. It's it's it it actually, in my opinion, it it really is. Um, it sort of neuters some of the creative possibilities for the field. You know, it it with a young field, the in my opinion, the most one one very important thing is the the horizon of possibilities oh, yeah. that that can exist and and that does when you're talking about these really really important things like consciousness. Um, so to only have a kind of a narrow opinion or a viewpoint, you know, of that and what the possibilities for the field hold is is it's just a huge mistake. So so navigating and being able to then take classes in religious studies while pursuing cogsci as well it, it 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 tends to that you know it 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 reminds me of all of these others perspective and it reminds me of the creative possibilities that 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 can happen when you put two disciplines like that together um there's a creative tension there um that's important because mm-hmm. by the same token i mean you can get these you know religious studies perspectives that are so nebulous and sort of like kind of just unrelatable and unform like formless and so abstracted that they have no they're not tethered to anything and mm-hmm. and it's not always important to be tethered but my point is i guess is that it's important to have a creative tension mm-hmm. in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> i agree yeah, yeah. like uh, thanks for the uh, sharing that story that was a it's a good image um are we ready to jump into spirituality? I, I, I there's yeah. a part of me that that does. I feel really excited or interested in that part of your history too, and so you may be able to say, John, no, no, I'm actually going to pick up on that in talking about spirituality. But every one of our conversations, you've just summarized something that I find so attractive about you, which is that capacity. You've walked around the world you've been interdisciplinary you've drawn the you know ideal image of the heart and gotten you know received a hundred and you know blissed out on a cliff at uh eslin you know and thought about you know the oceanic feeling you know yeah. <laughs> so to, to have those you're like a you know a biography of uh of tension and, and so that that thread you've really been paying attention to so i'll leave it to you to say no, actually, we're going to address that in spirituality, or is there something else we can tend to in cognitive science? Yeah, I think it runs through. I think it runs through the whole. Um, it runs through the whole conversation. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's very present. It's very present everywhere. I think we'll. I think we'll tend to some of those things um, yep. because, again, uh, here's this here's this definition of spirituality, which I'll start with, which implicitly holds a creative tension. So. One of my favorites is this definition I heard from Pittman McGee, dean of ex-dean of uh, Christ Church Cathedral, dean emeritus, or whatever the title is. Um, incredible man, psychotherapist, Jungian analyst. Um, episode five on the podcast. Episode five on the <laughs> podcast. If you haven't listened, do so. Um, and he he explained, suggested that spirituality is locating the transcendent in the eminent through everyday experience and observation. Which I just love. 
Um, and so there, there's this, again, this, this tension between the sacred and the profane, the transcendent and the imminent, the special and the ordinary. And that framework is one that has fueled a lot of my thinking. I want to, I want to suggest another definition as well so we can kind of talk about them together. Mm -hmm. I think it will be helpful. The other definition that I've been really loving recently is um, one from a mentor and friend and, and my colleague at the Institute, John K. Graham, Dr. John K. Graham, who elaborates that spirituality is our innate ability to connect. It's our ability to connect with other people. It's our ability to connect with the environment and the creatures of our environment. It's our ability to connect with the transcendent mystery that many call God. Many call other names, many choose not to name, might say the universe or the mystery. And ultimately, it's also our ability to connect with ourselves. And this is a relational definition. And so as I've been exposed to those, those definitions and thought about how they relate to my own life, my own interests, the things we've been talking about before, it's been really illuminating and um and exciting. It's been it's been exciting to 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 understand how those things weave in. So, you know, an example example, you know, since you asked more about Cogsci, um, that comes to mind is that this relational definition, this this one that hinges upon connection, is very accessible to really anybody, whether you would describe yourself as religious, spiritual, or, you know, materialist, atheist, science-minded researcher or something. Um, you're connecting with your work. You're connecting with theories that have taken you a lifetime to consider. Um, you're connecting with colleagues and a whole ecosystem of individuals working on those same projects. Um, we all connect. And that's, that's why that definition is so beautiful to me, because it doesn't require some notion of the sacred. It doesn't no, require a particular mm -hmm. thing for somebody to believe or to, to implicitly kind of have as part of their worldview in order to make the definition work. It's just about relating. And we all relate because we all have bodies and we're, we're in the world and we have senses and we're constantly connecting and relating. Um, and so, so I say all of that just to, just to say that, you know, a lot of times people think about religion and spirituality as separate from science, separate from materialist worldviews. Um, but that's because they're using very particular definitions of religion and spirituality that mm -hmm. oftentimes are based in their own biographies. <laughs> you know, it's like two people saying, one saying, I believe in God and one saying, I don't believe in God. Well, you know, we got to ask the question like, well, which God and what, what do they look like? And what do you even mean by that What is word? belief? What is, yeah. that, what is that to you? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so this, this definition is nice because it, it's, yeah. it's generic enough to, to connect with pretty much anybody. I haven't really found an example that wouldn't, wouldn't work for that one. Whether you want to call that spirituality or not, that's fine, but I'm calling it spirituality right now. Um, the other one is, is interesting because it also really fits with some of the, 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 
the theories and methods that Dr. Taves at UC Santa Barbara introduced me to. So she's done a lot of work around what what's called these building blocks of our of our experience, um, building blocks of religions and other special things. And so, without getting too deep and heady with it, um, the idea is that by experiencing the world and encountering things in the world, other people, ideas, objects, um, we start creating these hierarchies of meaning. um, And we start organizing our experiences so that we can represent them back to the world. Um, And through that process, we're doing what Pittman is 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 suggesting, and we're locating the special in the ordinary, or we're locating the transcendent in the imminent. I'll give you an example to make it more clear. So, if you're a kid and you're a rock collecting kid, as many young boys are, um, you're gonna have your rock collection. Maybe you have 30 rocks in your collection, and if somebody was to walk in and say, organize these rocks in terms of how special they are. I think the kid would probably have a relatively easy time doing that. Now, there might be clusters, but overall, the kid's going to be able to say, well, this rock is the most special rock because maybe it's a different color, it's a unique shape, maybe grandpa gave it to him, maybe, um, you know, they found it on some trip that the other rocks didn't come from, whatever. They're going to be able to kind of line these rocks up. So by doing that, they've created a system of meaning. They've created this hierarchy of meaning where they've set certain things apart and they've set certain aspects of their experience apart from other ones. And those ones they set apart, they ascribe meaning to, they attribute powers to, or they ascribe powers and attribute things happening to. It's how we get like a lucky rock or a lucky sweater or a lucky hat. There you are holding your holding your special, special rock, rock, which for those who are just listening, you don't have a video, it looks like a very basic, generic mm-hmm. river stone, like any other river stone you've seen. But John can tell you that it's not a basic, right. generic river stone. Yeah, Stuart's telling this story, and I, I carry a rock with me, and I have for about 12 years. I found it in San Diego at a Buddhism and psychotherapy conference with George, a friend of mine who's a psychologist that we had a room share with. and. This has been very special to me, and I thought this is, wow. I mean, thank, thanks for the example, but it's radical that I carry this rock. Yeah, so the rocks, it's its part of your spiritual tapestry. And and that's the point, is when we do this, this organizing uh, in the world, and, and you can do that in a lab, studying tropical diseases in the most scientific way possible. You can also do it on a retreat at, you know, Shambhala Mountain Center, mm-hmm. and you, you say, that meditation was particularly powerful. I've been meditating for a week straight, probably meditated like 50 times, but there's these couple that are special meditations. They're set apart. And when we start doing that, we're doing that all the time. We're doing that constantly in, in you know, a near infinite number of ways every moment, moment by moment. So when you start to kind of consider how we're doing those things, you begin to see how our what we call systems of meaning are at work and and the way we connect to those special things i think is what's is what that definition hinges upon and it's also what this transcendent in the eminent 
definition hinges upon is locating the special in that river stone that you've been carrying around. Well, so it's, it's really powerful. It is. Um, it's powerful to talk about right now and it's powerful to carry and it's powerful mm -hmm. to reflect on. And I notice when I tend to, it's perfect. It's like a perfect little rock. It's special, man. It's, it's very special. <laughs> so what's interesting to me is when we, we, we get into this thing that Jung called a nothing but, as in, you know, when you start to define these processes, you know, we are at risk at times of somebody saying, see, it's nothing but a linguistic process wherein we're trying to give life to something that doesn't actually exist. My, my initial thought is because I went there and I, I was thinking about, okay, how, how does one critique or criticize the religious spiritual worldview? And it, it does kind of tend to reduce it into a nothing but. And I, I want to hear what you say to this because my, one of my initial thoughts is that, yeah, but what happens is that we, we tend to um, disidentify or minimize our subjective experience that does have the experience of meaning that cannot be reduced and cannot be contained. You know, the, the moment that you're looking at that fella in the ambulance and so, so beautifully uh, reflected on that image of the, the connection you'll remember for the rest of your life that you know, brought an emotional experience out of me when you're recollecting it. I just wonder what you'd say to that when you when you hear about people who tend to want to codify and systematize these human processes and kind of are at risk of of um, creating a closed system that squashes or uh, eradicates the the subjectivity of the experience. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the first thing that came to mind is, and I don't mean it sound. Uh, to sound too simple is like good for them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like I, I think that's a beautiful thing too, um, and and I think that so often people that are and I know this about you and I, where we look out onto the universe with awe, um, but there's a real awesomeness as well in reduction, and I think that going down and smaller and smaller, and I think that's also this universe that's like sort of this other way and whether these people realize it or not they're they're plumbing the depths of the universe i mean they're you know so i think sometimes it's a matter of framing mm -hmm. and sometimes it's a matter of the language that we have and that we've been taught to use to describe what really significant things are um, but that's why this language of specialness and connection is really, it's really powerful because it, it doesn't have to be, um, something can be just whatever it can be just, it's like, uh, uh, James said in the varieties of religious experience, like it, you know, the mystical experience could be just a piece of meat, but there's a whole world to explore about why that piece of meat caused this person to do that. And, and I, my, if you're, if you're doing science right, and if you're doing it with creativity and passion and an openness, that's an infinite world of, mm -hmm. of exploration that you can delve into just studying for your whole life, what biochemical reality was of making that piece of meat, have the, make the, per, uh, having that piece of meat, make mystical the person dreams, have a you know? mystical experience yeah. or dream. So, so you can either 
explore the dream and get carried off that way and, and think that that's the, the story, the important story, the meaningful story. Or you can study the piece of meat and think that that's the most important, special, and meaningful story. Or you can kind of realize that looking at the dream and studying the piece of meat is they're both really, really important. And, and not only they're both important, they're both infinite in their horizon of possibilities. Um, and I think that's kind of the, that's what folks who are only interested in the mystical and non-scientific are missing. And that's what the people that are only interested in the scientific but not the mystical are missing. It's, it's, it's really a both and. And, um, and, and like I said, in terms of the, the language that's sometimes used, it's, it's unfortunate, but we have to communicate somehow. And people, people have a language that they've been taught and that they know how to use and that are comfortable using. So at some point, my experience is, is that wherever you are and whatever lens you're using, sometimes either the lens cracks or something real freaky kind of gets magnified <laughs> through the lens that makes you realize that you might have to have a bigger or smaller lens. Um, something happens in our lives to kind of shake that certainty. Not for everybody, but a lot of times it does. Those are powerful moments too. Um, so I hope that answers your question. I feel That's, like I kind of rambled a lot, no, but, no, I like but, that. uh, I, I just to close it out. I, uh, I think of Tom Cheatham, a fellow that I interviewed, uh, I think 21 or 22 in the podcast. He's a biologist and he, he found a deep sense of spirituality doing early research on uh, flea penises. Yeah, there you go. So he was looking at the reproductive system of fleas and just completely geeking out and finding this like curiosity and interest about all of nature and how, you know, creativity and evolution and, and he ended up, I, I did a, a lecture with him at the Jung Center recently on love and intimacy. And that those are the kinds of wacky connections, you know, uh, that one can get from studying flea dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I think about love, one of the most present images in my mind is flea, flea well, penises. Of course it so. is. You know, that's, uh, that, that's the image etched in our mind. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, now it will be. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I apologize in advance <laughs> for anybody who has that. <laughs> okay, so... Um, spirituality i mean mm -hmm. i think when we're hitting our our, our three uh, we're, we're on number one here in our two definitions of spirituality yeah where do yeah. we go next well so we've we've talked about these two definitions and uh, they'll carry through and i hope that they're interesting to listeners to summarize innate ability to connect is one of them and the other one is locating the special in the ordinary yeah um in, in, in the work at the Institute, uh, which I described a little bit earlier, um, we typically think about the relationship between spirituality and health in three different ways. The first way is that we think about it in terms of spirituality impacting health. And this is the one that most people are familiar with because things like meditation and mindfulness have become very popular. Prayer is obviously something that is in everybody's language and awareness. Community is something that is in everybody's awareness. And communities, rituals, 
and practices that are embedded in religious and spiritual traditions impact health, oftentimes for the better. So you can think of meditation and mindfulness to practices grounded in wisdom traditions impacting blood pressure, lowering blood pressure, reducing cortisol, having very distinct um, and still not super understood, but, you know, uh, ways of impacting the body. Um, another example in that in that area would be recovery from an acute illness or coping with a chronic illness. Having a religious community, a community of people there that you're connected to, to rope that, to rope that definition in, is going to be helpful. You know, you get out of the hospital, you need a lot of support. Having a special community that you feel connected to is going to be helpful for healing. It's not always positive, though. Sometimes we talk about what's called negative religious coping, mm -hmm. where you say something like, well, the reason why I'm ill is because God's punishing me for something. And so there's a, there's a kind of a theology and a way in which certain elements of religion or spirituality might negatively impact health um, or you know, damage a prognosis. Um, but for the most part, we find that there's this, this positive correlation there between being engaged in a religious or spiritual tradition or an awareness of those things and health and healing. Um, so then the second way we, we consider those things is, is the inverse of that. And for me, this is one of the more interesting ways of, of considering this relationship, which is not that religion and spirituality impact health, but that health impacts religion and spirituality. And to kind of broaden it a little bit more, you know, not just health, but our experience of having a body impacts religion and spiritual sensibilities. And the health comes in when the body is, our embodied experience or something wrong. We feel vulnerable. Um, something breaks. Um, but really just all of our embodied experience impacts, impacts our religion and our spirituality. It impacts our answers to the big questions. It impacts the way we make meaning. It impacts our systems of meaning. Um, if you walk into a hospital with your child who's been having some relatively minor seeming symptoms and they get diagnosed with a terminal illness, you know, this experience of being connected to this individual, being with them, yet having this terrible news about health is probably going to challenge or reinforce your ideas about the, the bigger picture, um, that which is larger than us. Is that what you mean by systems of meaning? That's what I mean by systems of meaning. I mean, by systems of meaning, I mean the, the, that complex of beliefs and values that help us navigate the world and our experiences, which, you know, you could talk about religion, you could talk about spirituality, you could talk about worldview, you could also talk about systems gender. of meaning. Gender. Yeah. Yeah, gender. Gender. Oh, yeah. Gender is, is a big part of the embod of our embodied experience, All obviously. And our physical selves, our sexual selves. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that we relate to that, the way that we experience our bodies, is going gonna, is gonna to impact our answers to the big questions. Um, so let me uh, the, the, just the note that I want to put in there is just this 
the fascinating reality that we actually can experience our bodies differently than how we do currently. And I, again, may seem very simple, but I think a lot of times we, we cling to the familiar and we expect the familiar. And so we guard against any experience that is, you know, diverging in any way from that kind of predictable, routine, familiar norm, meaning the way I experience sadness or the way I experience shame or the way I experience insecurity or anxiety and what I imagine those things mean in the moment. Because mm. if I experience anxiety mm. and I think that means that you're a threat to me, I will believe and behave in certain ways that create my reality as opposed to challenging certain systems of beliefs and recognizing that they can be different and mm -hmm. I can embody that in a different way. I can, I can derive different, I'm kind of, uh, this seems mechanistic, but I can derive different information from my experience of my emotions and then you know, behave in different ways. And I, from the psychotherapeutic perspective, I think a lot of times that's, that's a gigantic surprise. You know, when you, when you do kind of get in a vulnerable moment and suggest to somebody that they can, that can just to consider there's a different way to go about that, to be embodied in that moment. And then a cascade of things happens as a result. I, I don't know where, where I go there. I just, hearing you talk about systems of meaning puts a, a a name to something that um, is, is making a lot of sense to me right now. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and what's reflected in your comments just now, which is so beautiful, it's kind of the whole point of this, is that it's a, it's a two-way street. The way that we believe about our bodies is going to impact the way our bodies are functioning, but then the way that our bodies are functioning are impacting the way we're believing about them. So there's this really beautiful relationship between, again, spirituality, religious identity, worldview, systems of meaning, and then our embodied reality, our embodied physical presence. Yeah, because um, an orgasm can be um, beautiful and transformative, and an orgasm can be dirty and shameful. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, it, and, and, and where we, whichever, where on that spectrum we are is going to impact our experience of the orgasm, the yeah. physical reality. I mean, our sensation of it. Yeah. You know, um, so 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 that's this interesting two way street. Um, I think that this 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 second one is woefully under attended to in medicine, in popular culture. Uh, I don't think we give enough thought to understanding how our embodied experience in the world whether it's one of health or one of sickness, is impacting our, our worldviews, how it's impacting our systems of meaning, our religious or spiritual orientation or identity. I mean, here's a great example, is that a, a while back, um, MD Anderson, a researcher at MD Anderson, uh, came to the Institute and asked, um, he wanted to tell us about this smoking cessation project that he was interested in. And he said, well, you know, I've really been working on this curriculum around smoking cessation and we have been really successful in schools and businesses and in other public settings like community centers, um, public parks, et cetera. We've been able to just disseminate this information and really get people on board with this smoking cessation curriculum. But where we've really struggled is in faith communities. You know, we haven't really been able to package it in a way that's, that's useful for faith communities. Uh, you know, can you help us with that? Do you have any ideas about that? And we didn't 
we didn't we weren't involved in the project in the long term but we did give some insights at the beginning that i think were useful and one of them was this um these researchers were instrumentalizing faith and they're stuck in this first definition mm -hmm. that religion and spirituality in particular the physical reality of these communities can be helpful towards health they can impact health we can use religion and spirituality as a tool to impact health and healing which is great it's very noble and um obviously there's there's a lot to that but they were what they were missing which i think for for a religious community would be the most compelling thing is that by impacting these people's health their experience of worship is going to be different so for the smoking cessation example is well you can talk about how a sermon is going to impact the person's ability to quit smoking that's what they were thinking mm -hmm. you can also talk about how quitting smoking is going to change that person's relationship to the sermon it may mean that they're focusing more because they're not craving the cigarette it may mean that they have less jitters it may mean that they're more in their body because their limbs aren't you know a colder temperature because they don't have nicotine in their bodies or whatever but the idea is that as well as tending to this idea that faith impacts spirituality we we're going to talk about i mean how faith impacts health behaviors let's consider for a second how health behaviors are going to impact your experience of not only the sermon but of the divine of your relationship with god um of this whole other side of the street that normally people aren't thinking as deeply about. Well, many people aren't. So it's, it's very interesting. I think, so then the third way of understanding, just so we can kind of get them all out, so we can purge all three definitions, is, um, or three ways that these spirituality and health relate to each other, is simply cultural awareness and cultural competency, or sometimes what we are more and more favoring this idea of cultural humility. So this is just, Kind of simply put it's what do we need to know about our own beliefs and the beliefs of others in order to engage health most responsibly and effectively so how might a jewish person seek health differently than a muslim person or a buddhist when they are receiving health what's important to know about those cultural and religious traditions in order to deliver health care most effectively as somebody of faith, what would be important for me to know about my own belief system in order to walk into a therapeutic or health encounter in an optimal way or, or you know, an informed way? So this is, mo this is more about knowing yourself and knowing others so that you can navigate health effectively. And I also think there's um, a lot of tremendous work being done in that area. Um, and uh, it's also an important part of this piece. So, so those are those three, those three relationships: spirituality impacting health, health impacting spirituality, and then sort of cultural competency and cultural awareness. And that framework really informs a lot of the way that I, I do my job, the way I think about, you know, how to connect a lot of these ideas, um, and how to. It, it provides a nice, a nice framework for thinking and programming and experiencing. What are the common issues that you see in these three arenas when some, because you and I spoke a long time ago about, or maybe not that long ago, about uh, 
kind of who your typical who the typical person is that comes to you. And you were talking about how, you know, business will come and say that we, we, we don't know how to measure, we don't know how to even talk about spirituality. Again, it's, it, it, people have these limited understandings or, um, yeah, limited understandings based on their own history, I'm, I'm sure, about what spirituality or religion is. So who tends to come to you and how do you tend to envision working through their various problems on either three, any, any of these three levels? Yeah. Yeah, a wide range of individuals come to the Institute. Um, and what's important to recognize and the reason why that framework is important is is whatever somebody comes with, you can kind of locate which, which arena they're using to think about their current problem. And what's exciting is letting them know about these other ways of considering the relationship between spirituality and health and, think, and seeing if there's creative possibilities that arise from thinking differently about it. So if, you know, if MD Anderson comes to us and says, you know, we have this program, this is the way we're thinking about it. We can tell him, well, there's these two other ways of considering this relationship. Let's work from there. If an individual comes to us with a certain problem that they're dealing with, and they think that the Institute will be a good resource for them, then we can help kind of locate where they are, what framework they're using, help you know, figure out kind of what their system of meaning is and then help introduce some of these other ideas so that they can they can think about how to proceed and think about how to work. Um, you know, we had a we had a woman call the other day who had just had a miscarriage. And, you know, the Institute, we don't you know that we're not equipped to to work with somebody like that. You know, there's a lot of really great organizations in town that are. And so I kind of took it as an opportunity to refer her out. But something about Spirituality and Health Institute, she felt comfortable calling us and saying, can you help me? You know, something about our name and our website or whatever. Mm -hmm. Let her know that this could be an interesting place to call. So as I was sitting there talking to her, I was, I was realizing that nowhere on our website does it say you know, miscarriage support group or, you know, the loss of an unborn child, etc. But there was something attractive about about us for her. So it told me that she needed to what was going to be most beneficial for her in terms of what she was expecting was to find a place or a framework that tended to that relationship in all of its dimensions not just going to a faith community and going to a bereavement group there, but in bereavement, thinking about how it's impacting her religion and spirituality, and then asking her about her, um, you know, cultural and religious and spiritual orientation so that we can find a place that's most appropriate for her. So those are two that's like big institution, MD Anderson, and then one, you know, bereaved mother who, um, you know, those are kind of two different but hopefully interwoven examples um yeah sometimes i describe the institute kind of like a, a consulting firm for spirituality and health where if you're an individual an organization hospital uh, a group of people a clinician who is doing great work but wants to infuse it with some elements of the spirituality and health connection then we can help do that. 
And, and the way we help do that is by relying on some of these frameworks that we've been describing. Well, how do you, because as, as you're talking, I'm having a lot of thoughts about you know, organized religion and how that's in decline. And the increase of spiritual but not religious. And spiritual but not religious people are organizing too. That's right. And I, we're seeing a ton of that. But, but that, that's kind of what I'm getting at, which is, you know, there seems to be something, and this is going to be a grand statement, there seems to be something innate in our human experience that seeks to carry a rock, to create ritual. To, to, to your point earlier, find special experience, whether that is a human being out of the, the many human beings out there in the world where one's sense is you're the only one for me. Or, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm having to get a new car right now. And I was like in the car dealership feeling sensitive about how my car, current car is going to feel when I, when I depart, when we part ways, you know, and it's comical, but it's true. And I felt it. And you can judge it all day long and say it's just a fucking car, but it's meaningful and it matters to me. Yeah. And, you know, I almost felt like, a, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in this guy's office looking outside and my car's looking at me. And I feel like I'm kind of like cheating on my, my vehicle. So <laughs> that's a weird tangent but what we're what we see is that all these moments of meaning that yeah where we love where we connect deeply where yeah. you know a sunset is not just a bundle of fire and chemical and oxygen all and, and my vision but it's an experience so the the innate what is innate in us is this desire to find discover create ritual out of these um, fundamental aspects of living, belonging, um, connection, mm -hmm. um, uh, solitude, so on and so forth. So you seem to be kind of at the forefront of that shift in our culture where you're, you're providing um, a, a religious space for people to ask questions that are, are not back to your initial point, you know, we don't ask those questions. And so I, I immediately want to mind kind of your, your more of your personal experience about what are the challenges of doing that? What kind of um, struggles have you had in doing that? Uh, you know, let's let's relate a bit a bit and connect from your personal experience of being in that space. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, going back to what you said, it's 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 a scary process. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for an individual it's a scary process for me Stuart it's a scary process to ask certain questions about the way I'm walking through the world and what I believe mm -hmm. it's 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 challenging for an institution that's been doing things a certain way and has their own framework and system it's been chugging along that's scary to ask a, a, a question that that's a big one that might have impacts and shift around that system of meaning. Um, we, we, that's the challenge really is getting people and institutions and ourselves to be in a vulnerable and safe enough and trusting enough space to realize that it's going to be okay. 
it just might be a little different. And, um, and so there's some resistance to that. And, and people are ready for it, you know, those insights, certain times in their life, after certain experiences, on certain days when the weather is a certain way. You know, there's a whole ecosystem of stuff that can play into when or when someone is not ready to, to kind of wrestle with some of those things. But, you know, I want to also, I also want to call out this fact that, or my belief, that this isn't something we do like, well, it is and it isn't. So it's not something we do like opening a door. We can be intentional about cultivating this ability, but it's something implicitly we're doing all the time. And that's what I think is really amazing about it too, is that as we're navigating the world as embodied beings, we're, whether we know it or not, we're creating these hierarchies of meaning, we're refining our system of meaning, we're refining our worldview, our, our, our religious and spiritual lives are different moment to moment because we're collecting and integrating information about the world, we're having new experiences, we're having new insights, we're being affected by powers and forces that we don't understand. All of this is just happening to us. And we have a role in that. So there is this agency that we, you know, we can do stuff. We can cultivate that awareness of that process happening. But it's, it's happening whether you're like doing it or not. It's not, it's not something that you're doing. It's something that it's doing to you, you know. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I sometimes I, I describe it as a, as a superpower that we're born with. All humans are born with the superpower of, of meaning making and a um, superpower of being curious and asking questions and considering things through a spiritual lens, if that's the word we want to use. Um, we're all born with it. So we're all always doing it. It's like living within us. It's, it's part of us. Um, but through learning, through connecting, we can become a more aware and conscious of that reality and then we can cultivate it um i remember i do some work at the women's home we run this sort of spiritual exploration group there called the courage to search and the clients there are mainly women they're all women who are in uh, many who are in recovery most of whom are homeless uh, many of whom have suffered from you know domestic violence incarceration substance use disorders and uh one particular woman i was talking about the superpower of meaning making i was i was talking about what what i just introduced to this conversation and and she raised her hand and she she said aha you know i i, I get it i have language now for it. i said you get what and she said well i was incarcerated for several years i was in prison and I was in the dumps there. I was really, really depressed. And I was, every day was the same. And obviously, they're not trying to make it comfortable for everybody. Um, it's boring. Uh, she was really at a low place. Mm. And so she started journaling. And so she started, you know, maybe a friend or someone, um, you know, a fellow inmate or whoever gave her a journal and she started journaling. And she found this tremendously helpful. 
And she was journaling about what she was observing, journaling about her thoughts, about her experiences, about people she was meeting on the inside. And uh, and this was it, it was it was it lifted her out of this this these doldrums. And she said, "What I realize now, after hearing you talk about the superpower, is that I was not learning how to journal. I was learning how to fly." <laughs> and it was so beautiful. It was like, yes, exactly. It's nothing, nothing, nothing that you didn't have before. Nothing that you really, on some levels, you weren't doing before. But now you're consciously doing it and you're cultivating that skill. And so rather than just getting these every once in a while little levitations off the ground, now you, you know how to leap out and take off into the sky. That's the power of meaning making, and that's the power of this this superpower that we all have. Um, and and frankly, to return to kind of the beginning of our conversation, that's the power for me. That was the power of religious studies. Religious studies gave me a framework in order to to cultivate that skill and to cultivate an awareness of that process happening, and and hopefully help extend that process to others and that understanding and awareness to others. Um, that's the superpower. Yeah, I know. And it's so often I hear people, whether it's in my office or in classes or just out and about, you know, these, what are the practices? Which I think is important, you know, almost, almost following an ascetic, you know, worldview where, you know, yeah, spend time in nature and reflect on yourself and, you know, tend to your relationships and eat well and spend time in silence. Uh, but but there's there is something that sometimes that becomes a bit prescriptive too. So for her to spontaneously have that experience and have it the experience of it mattering, it wasn't some kind of, and maybe this is it. It wasn't some kind of way out of a struggle, but by engaging something inside of her, she she found out she could fly. It doesn't change the struggle, and so we you know part of my in the mental health world, you know, we, we've we've got a really bad habit of pathologizing um, dark experience as undesirable, and we want to take flight from it. And you know, the the most the, a really common approach is like, well, how do I get rid of my anxiety? Mm. You know, rather than where is my anxiety taking me? Mm -hmm. And I say that as a human being who, at times, I want to take flight from my anxiety. So full disclosure, you know, but, you know, in my most conscious of moments, there is a way to allow for that experience to take me into something deeper, broader. Maybe it's a part of my history. Maybe it's a uh, something different in my experience. Maybe it's something that I'd once found threatening, but really is valuable and important. You know, the, you know, the, your work with people who've been in prison, you know, you're finding human beings, you know, that have been criminalized in a number of ways by the culture and yet there is such humanity inside of them trying to emerge you know and bust out yeah it's um we get stuck in that problem solution mindset mm -hmm. prescription mindset um everyone does because we have discomfort and we want to alleviate that there's a leaning in that's really valuable too. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I just, I think that, I think that, you know, you know, an easy practice, an easy practice that can help kind of make, form some awareness around that tendency to be prescriptive is just, um, is just that, realizing that we have that tendency and just by doing that, just by noticing, just by noticing that aspect of ourselves, that's that can be a game changer. It, again, so that's that's approaching the problem of prescription not with another prescription. It's it's approaching it by acknowledging the reality of that tendency. Um, yeah, that, that it's a it's a it's a problem. We medicalize things, we pathologize them. Mm-hmm. You know, we're very problem, especially in America. Yeah. Very very problem and solution focused, which is which is useful. It's great, and it's led to a lot of really really wonderful things. But it can be problematic if taken too far and sort of stripped out of the larger ecosystem of what's going on. Well, I want to close this out. Um, kind of tending to any threads that are lingering. Um, I've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I, yeah, and the the one question that you may just say, no, I really covered that. Again, I want to be back in your personal experiences. What kind of ideas and experiences have influenced your life in meaningful ways, maybe even outside of the academic context? I've been paying a lot of attention recently to birds. Uh, I have been engrossed by bird watching. I've been obsessed with it the last couple of years. And as I've as I've done this bird watching, birding thing, uh, it's caused me to reflect on my life and and figure out where birds have shown up in my life. And um, so, out of the sort of fruit tree of possibilities I'll, I'll choose one choose to pluck one here to leave you with that I think is particularly meaningful in my life and formative um, when we my family was living in Singapore my brother had just been born my younger brother he uh, he's five years younger and so I was I was five and six and seven when I when I was getting to know him in the first part of his year and in the first part of his life. And what was, what was really cool was I was aware enough and with it enough by that point, I was, you know, developed enough to, to remember a remember some of these early memories of my brother and B um, I was able to kind of know that it was really cool and special that there was this new being around, you know, I, I remember kind of, having that awareness in a simple six-year-old way but having that awareness of like oh wow there's this other creature here kind of the early flirtation with the miracle of life and you know these wonderful wonderful romantic ideas and and emotions that come along with with new life when we look out in spring and we see the trees blooming you know there's a sense that that carries with it um so anyway so we're living in singapore brothers just born love him and in singapore it was cool because it's you know it's a big city um but my family always tried to explore um the city but also 
little natural areas, you know, on the coast, you know, it's an island. So, you know, some beaches and they have this really cool reservoir with this jungle around it. And sometimes we would walk through there. And one of the most striking and beautiful things that you would witness on these walks is, is our, our birds. And in particular, this kingfisher, white-throated kingfisher, which I only recently um, found out was the most common of the kingfishers in Singapore. And I remember, um, watching kingfishers with with my dad and my mom and young grant and uh i just love them they're they're wonderful birds they're very unique they look different than other birds they have a huge bill they fly differently they make this very interesting call i mean their calls are all different but they have all of them have wonderful calls um and they do these acrobatics to fish these very specialized fishing machines that's why they're called kingfishers and they're very colorful so as a kid they're just these little gems in the sky whizzing around and um so this also was a an early experience of beauty and of life and of the richness of um of our human embodied experience and so uh, the other thing to know is that we lived in an apartment building down this cul-de-sac, and every day, even as a six-year-old, probably because Singapore is so safe, I would walk from the apartment building down the cul-de-sac to this main street, and the school bus would come pick me up, go off to school, and I'd come back on that same corner, and I'd get off the bus, and I'd walk back. And on the sidewalk to the apartment there was a kind of like a little grassy median right next door like right next between kind of the wall and there was a grassy zone and then the sidewalk and that wall was really long and it it followed the whole sidewalk so that means the grassy median was also there the whole way and there was um i just i don't know why i really bring that up other than i remember that grassy median really well you know as i'm walking along looking up at the apartment complex looking down at this grassy zone and so one day I get off the bus and I start walking down the sidewalk and I look over and there sitting is a beautiful kingfisher that was dead and decomposing. And I was very, very impacted and struck by seeing this. It was the first time that I had really looked death in the face in the sense that something very beautiful that I had attached a lot of meaning as a six-year-old and had been contextualized by the birth of my brother and this new life, looking at that dead kingfisher, this beautiful, beautiful being that had, that had perished and was decomposing. And so I remember... Um, digging a hole with my hands uh, and d gently placing the kingfisher in the hole and covering it up. And every day then, to and from school, I would be able to look and I would be able to see the grave of the white-throated kingfisher. And this was the... This was this very powerful moment of holding creative tension between beauty and ugliness, between the transcendent and the, the profane, between the special and the ordinary.
between life and death, light and darkness. This was a a very um, a very powerful and meaningful experience in my life that uh, that I've carried with me and that I can remember um, even now. And when people uh, when sometimes when you recall early childhood memories, they say, "Well, you only remember that because it was like in the scrapbook," but there's no pictures of any of that and none of my family or anything was there when that was happening. It was just six-year-old Stuart. Um, and it's, it stayed with me. It's rippled through my, my life all these years. Thank you. That's a good place to stop. Thank you so much for having me. And um, this has been a tremendously um, illuminating and inspiring and beautiful, beautiful time together. Uh, so yeah, I really, really appreciate it. It always is with you, Stuart. I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you too, Tom. Thank you.